The first reading this morning is uh, Genesis chapter 25, which starts on page 19 of the Black Bible, starting at verse 1. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Ashurim, Letushim, and Leamim. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Epher, Hanoch, Abida, and Elda. All these were the children of Keturah. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac, eastwards to the east country. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Beer Lahai Roy. These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in order of their birth. Nebaioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar, Adbil, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Massa, Hadad, Tima, Jeter, Naphish, and Kadima. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names. By their villages and by their encampments, twelve princes according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died, and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife, because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah his wife conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out all red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterwards, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, 
Let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, Swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Our second reading is from Romans, chapter 9, verses 6 to 16, which is on page 945. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Thank you all very much. Thank you, Fergus, for covering all the names so well. Uh, and please do go back to Genesis 25. That's our main passage this morning uh, on page 19 of the Bible, the Church Bible. And let me pray as we come to God's word. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, please would you help me, help me to be faithful and clear as I ought to be, and help us all to have uh, open ears and hearts to hear what you have to say and to be changed by you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this week, um, Jesse and I have been uh, into school a few times, uh, the primary school where our kids are, um, and one of the things that reminded me of is that good teachers repeat themselves. I should probably say that again, shouldn't I? Good teachers repeat themselves. And it's not just teachers, is it? It's leaders and parents that say, you know, the kind of sweetheart, let's think of a better place to put the yogurt than on the cat's face. Darling, did you hear what I said? Please put the yogurt in your mouth and not on the cat's face. Given all that, it should be no surprise to us that God uses repetition in the Bible often. He repeats things. He's a wise teacher. He's, he's a loving parent to us. Of course he uses repetition. And actually some truths in the Bible are so big or so countercultural, or so counterintuitive, counter the way we kind of naturally think as humans rebelling against God. Some truths take a long time to sink into our hearts. And so the scriptures teach them over and over again to us. I remember a wise old Christian once said to me, he reckoned the Bible only said about five things. Just said them a lot and over a long time. <laughs> and as I've gone on, I think there's a lot of wisdom in what he said. I can't remember his exact five, but here's five, the, the, the sort of things he was saying. Huge truths 
most of which we've already seen in Genesis. So truth number one, God is utterly good. The God who made this world, he's not mean or stingy or trying to ruin life. He doesn't ever lie to us. He's good, utterly good, generous, kind, wanting us to flourish, speaking the truth to us. That's truth one. Alongside God is utterly good is the second truth, we are not. Again, we find that very hard to absorb. It's not the story we tell ourselves or tell each other in culture. Truth three, there's more to this world than what we can see. I mean, science tells us that. There's really small things, microscopic, quantum things we can't see with our eyes. There's really big things, things a long way away which we can't see uh, with our eyes. But the Bible says there's also invisible spiritual realities too. Not least in terms of a future, a future beyond death, a future day of judgment that's coming when we'll meet our maker and be held accountable. That's truth three. There's more to this world than meets the eye. Truth four, which actually is a consequence of the first three, truth four is we need God to rescue us. God is utterly good, truth one. We are not, truth two, and yet we're facing a day, truth three, when we'll meet God and be held accountable. And so, truth four, we need God to rescue us. And then truth five, Jesus is the one he can rescue us. Much of the Bible preparing the way for him. So there you go, five big truths, big basic truths, all of them hard to believe. So the Bible says those kind of things a lot. But our passage this morning has truth number six. Uh, it's so big, it deserves to be up there in that kind of basic things taught by Scripture. And here's the truth. God's rescue by Jesus is 100% by grace. That's the truth. God's rescue by Jesus is 100% by grace. Or to put it another way, God chooses where his blessing goes. That is, it's not about our performance. It's not that he rewards what we're doing. No, he, he chooses where he shows kindness and, and blessing, chooses where his blessing goes. It's his mercy, not our performance or merit. Like all those truths I mentioned, that one is a hard one to absorb. I wouldn't be surprised if what we're looking at this morning leads to some questions. We might find it's hard to get our heads around it. Like, how does this actually work? My friend, it's hard to get our hearts around it. Is that, is that good? Is that fair? Happily, uh, we have a question time coming up. So there's a whole big sheet inside your uh, outline, uh, inside your server sheet that, um, where you can scribble questions for uh, Q&A Sunday evening next, next week, uh, next Sunday. Um, and there is an outline of where we're going on the back of the, the sheet. Um, but let's get into our passage um, uh, and see this truth that God directs where his blessing goes. Now, the main part of our passage, it starts at verse 19. It's handy, that, isn't it? Page 19, verse 19, that's where we're starting. And you can see you've got the kind of title music or theme music that comes up in Genesis every time we're starting a kind of new season. Um, so verse 19, these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. This is a big moment. This is kind of season two of the real faith lives of Canaan, Abraham's family, this kind of all-access um, documentary about what went on with them. This generation is going to be covering Isaac and particularly his children, Jacob and Esau. We're going to be covering them from chapters 25 to 35. Um, that's what kicks off at verse 19. But, of course, 
Good teachers use repetition. So just before we get into verse 19 onwards, there's a kind of recap. So you know on TV dramas, they often do a previously on. And then you get snippets of kind of key moments from a character's life. The things you need to remember as you go into season two. Well, verses 1 to 18 of chapter 25 is like that. Previously on real life's, real faith lives of Canaan. What do we see in verses 1 to 18, just very briefly? Well, the camera focuses on uh, a key character, um, which is uh, Abraham. Um, so verses 1 to 8, uh, the character of Abraham. Um, don't worry about our guests. Uh, Andrew Young will be fine um, helping them. Uh, verses 1 to 8, uh, the, the life of Abraham. What do we see about Abraham? Um, uh, we see that he was flawed, um, so that mention of um, concubines in verse 6 is, is not a good thing. Uh, he's making a mess again. So we see that Abraham was flawed. But we also see he was blessed. So Abraham was the man God had chosen to bless, and then through him to bless many across the world. So that's kind of previously on. Remember Abraham, the flawed guy who was blessed. And he dies in good old age as God had promised. He dies with many children, as God has promised. The blessed one, even though he was flawed, God chose to bless him previously on. That's Abraham. The other bit of previously on clips is about uh, two sons. The two sons of Abraham, initially Ishmael and Isaac. Now Ishmael, in verses 12 to 18, it looks like the stronger. Uh, he, he's got loads of descendants, and uh, he's uh, got 12 princes. He looks really strong. But actually, Isaac is the chosen one. Look with me at verse 5. Chapter 25, verse 5. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac, despite all these other people. And then, uh, it's not just Abraham. Verse 11. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son. And Isaac settled. So that's kind of the recap. Remember Abraham, the flawed man chosen by God. Remember those two sons. One of them was chosen by God, Isaac. That's what we're to have kind of ringing in our ears and in our minds as we go into season two. Okay, so let's get into season two then. Um, verse 19 um, kicks things off. And we, we've got um, three points. So I'm going to try and go relatively quickly through our three points. So I do want a few minutes at the end to talk about the implications and some of the questions that may be coming up in our minds as we go through. Um, so let's uh, get into point one of three. And this is the point... God provides a miraculous pregnancy, reversing the curse again. This is verses 19 to 21. God provides a miraculous pregnancy, reversing the curse again. There's a lot of repetition in this passage. That's why I did the intro on repetition. Uh, this is happening again. If you read verses 20 and 21 and you get a kind of feeling of deja vu, um, oh, hang on, haven't we heard this story before? A wife who can't have children in Abraham's family, where God's promise is there'll be many, many, many offspring, a, a huge family. Well, yes, we have all heard all of that before. Um, and it's covered very quickly here. It's just one verse, but that actually covers 20 years of history. So uh, Isaac's married when he's 40. We saw that last week. Uh, and the boys, Jacob and Esau, are born when he's 60. So 20 years. 20 years of what would have been no small amount of sadness and grief and worry. Like, God's promise is actually going to happen. We said before in Genesis that uh, this 
um, picture of a wife unable to have children. It's both a painful personal tragedy, and there are folk in this church family who know that all too well, but actually it's also a reminder of Genesis 3. So in Genesis 3, God's specific curse when humanity rebelled against him, uh, one aspect of it involved bearing children. So this is a reminder that this world is not right. That's why I've called it reversing the curse again. God, by providing this miraculous pregnancy, is showing he can reverse the curse, showing that in this family there's hope that this fallen world can be put back right. That's why it's not a promise that every Christian couple who pray like this, if they're grieving childlessness, will automatically have a baby. That's not it at all. No, God's promises to Abraham will happen. They will fix this world. That's the point. And so verse 21, Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. The Lord granted his prayer and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. You can imagine the joy, can't you, after 20 years. He's done it. He's done it again. This happened last time. Amazing. I mean, one miracle birth, that's quite something. But twice, like the next generation, clearly not an accident. Clearly deliberately repeating the pattern, clearly teaching us something. That even when things might look hopeless and helpless in this world to our eyes, no, God has the power to reverse the curse. That's point one. Secondly, though, I hope you're still with me. Secondly, point two, God says where his blessing goes, reversing the roles again. No sooner has Rebecca experienced the joy of pregnancy, but then she feels that something's not right. It's not just the usual flutters or gentle kicks. No, it seems like there's a full-blown fight going on inside her. And so she turns to the Lord for help, verse 22. The children struggled together within her, and she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to the inquirer of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided the one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. This is our second point. God says where his blessing goes. He reverses the roles again. Now, if you were to scan your eyes through verses 22 to 28, you, we learn all sorts of things about Rebecca's sons. Um, she's pregnant with twins, uh, and one of them is going to be called Esau. Uh, you meet him in verse 25. Um, he's red-skinned. He's red-blooded. He's the kind of hairy hunter of the family. Um, he's the Ray Mears or the kind of Bear Grylls guy in the Abrahamic clan. Uh, you'd back him. If, if you went into kind of, I'm a celebrity, get me out of here, you'd back him in the jungle. Uh, then there's Jacob, who you'd, you'd maybe back on Celebrity Bake Off. He's a kind of different character, although he'd probably be cheating, to be honest. Uh, he's a kind of heel grabber, or the name means that, or cheater. Um, He's always finding a way to game the system. We see in verse 28, another thing we learn about them, 28, that the parents actually have favorites. So Isaac really likes the meat that Esau brings, and Esau's his favorite, and Rebecca likes Jacob. That's a sign of problems to come. This is a messy family that will become very divided. But actually, of all the details we learn about the boys, verse 23 is the key one. See, when Rebecca inquires what's going on, 
She's told these words, two nations are in your womb, two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and then the shock, the older shall serve the younger. Huh? What? That doesn't, no, no, no. That's not how it normally works. Like, the firstborn, especially if there's a bit of argy-bargy, the firstborn is the one who gets the rights, assumes the position of responsibility in the family, of leadership, uh, and gets extra blessing with it. The firstborn is the main heir, normally. So what's going on there, God? Well, God is directing where his blessing goes. In this generation of Abraham's family, God will choose who inherits the blessing, who's treated as the heir, the firstborn. And this is not the first time it's happened. Remember the start of the chapter? Remember previously on. That was all about those two sons. And Ishmael was the firstborn, not Isaac. And yet Isaac was the one who inherits everything Abraham had. Isaac's the one that God blesses as the heir. This is what I'm saying about repetition. Uh, Just think about it. It's not just that Abraham was chosen by God out of all the candidates on earth for no special reason. It's that then Abraham's two sons were reversed in order. Actually, I choose to bless Isaac, not Ishmael. And now, third time, actually, I, I, I would choose to bless Jacob, the younger, not Esau, the firstborn. It's a role reversal again. And actually, this role reversal is more striking. It's kind of more stark than the one with Ishmael and Isaac, the last generation. Because with Ishmael, there were a few kind of, you know, question marks. I mean, he wasn't born by Sarah, Abraham's actual wife. He was born through this kind of DIY approach, this kind of don't have faith, but instead force it, try and get the results of God's promises without trusting God to do it. He was born through an illegitimate relationship with an Egyptian slave girl who then mocked Sarah. I mean, on lots of grounds, you might have questions, spiritual or ethnic or moral or marital. You might think, well, is he the right candidate? So, you know, maybe, maybe it wasn't a real choice, that one. And actually, didn't God want to work through a miraculous son? I mean, we're preparing the way for Jesus here. So, of course, Abraham's offspring would have to be a miraculous son, and Isaac was the only one who was like that. But then think about these twins. Same mum, same dad, same pregnancy, same womb, same time, same miracle, same faith behind them. Isaac prayed to God, and Rebecca conceived. Everything about them is the same when God makes this announcement. I wonder if we're getting the point yet. God directs where his blessing goes. He did it with Abraham. He did it with Isaac. And now he's doing it with Jacob. And actually, those, those three names, that's how God introduces himself for the rest of the Bible. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. I'm the God who directs where my blessing goes. The God of grace and undeserved favor. Now, at this point, we may, the objections may begin to, to, to pop up. Hang on, verse 23 doesn't actually use the word choose, does it? And that's absolutely right. The word choice isn't there. I'm saying God chooses, but uh, actually it's just an announcement of what will happen. Uh, so maybe this isn't a choice. Maybe it's just God telling us the future, foretelling what's going to happen. 
And actually, to be honest, if the story was on its own, I would agree. That's all we could say. But remember, we've had ringing in our ears previously on and Isaac and Ishmael. And God was explicit there to Abraham that he chose Isaac. In fact, Abraham tried to talk God out of his choice. Oh, that Ishmael would live before you, me, before you. And God said, no, I'll, I'll bless Ishmael with all sorts of things, but my covenant goes with Isaac. I've chosen that. Abraham tried to talk God out. Isaac actually here is going to try and steer things away from Jacob over the coming chapters. But God's made his choice. Now, if you really are thinking, I think think he's reading too much into this episode. Uh, Maybe you think I've been drinking too much of the Calvinist Kool-Aid and just I've got choice on my brain. Well, let's turn to Romans 9. Because happily, uh, with these really important big truths that we find it hard to absorb, happily the Bible says them more than once. God likes repetition for our sake. So let's turn to Romans 9. And Romans 9 is a great place to be. It's page 945 in the Church Bibles. Um, it's a great place to be because it's referring directly to Genesis 25, helping us to see what we should see there. So let me just pick it up from verse 7. This is verse 7 of Romans 9. Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. That was the choice God made in the last generation. So verse 8, this means it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year, I'll return and Sarah shall have a son. Okay, now we get to our passage, Genesis 25. Not only so, but also, when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election, that is choice, might continue, not because of works, But because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. See that key phrase in verse 11. This whole reversal of roles with those two boys. The fact it was announced before they'd done anything good in their lives or bad. It was in order that God's purpose of election might continue, carry on like it had with Abraham and Isaac. Or to put it in other ways, in other words, sorry. The reason why some people are saved and not others is not primarily about something to do with us. So important for Christians to get our heads around this. We are not saved because of something we have done, some quality in us, but because of God's kindness and his grace to us. Even our response to the gospel to Jesus. Our faith in him is a gift of God's grace. Now at that point we might well have a hundred questions popping off in our minds like, like why does God choose some and not others? And sometimes that question is asked with, with real heartache for those we love as we continue to pray and witness to them. We might have questions like how is this fair? We might have questions like does this mean everything we do is meaningless? Like if God's already decided it all is it kind of pointless to even make choices? Some of those questions we're going to return to at the end, um, so please stay with me till then. Um, Some of them you might want to write on the sheet of paper, and we'll try and address them next Sunday evening. Um, But actually, one of the most pressing questions might be, isn't this a bit harsh on Esau? And why does Esau get left out? What did Jacob do to deserve 
the kind of promotion. Well, if you're still in Romans 9, remember verse 11, have a look at that. The point is, Jacob did nothing special. He didn't do anything to deserve it. It was announced before he'd done anything good. And the Bible does go on to say that's true of every Christian. And it should humble us. When we became a Christian, we weren't headhunted because of what we can offer. And our response to the gospel is not something we should be proud of, like, well, maybe I was a bit morally cleaner, more up for God's standards, or maybe I was a bit intellectually sharper. I could kind of see clearly what, what the Bible was teaching, or, or maybe I was spiritually hungrier, more open to God's voice. No, nothing to be proud of, actually. We responded because God called us by his grace and mercy. That's why Romans 9 goes on to say, God, God said in Exodus, I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. But maybe you're thinking, no, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. I did do something. I invited Jesus into my heart. I prayed the prayer. I turned and I trusted Jesus. I got baptized. I, I started living with Jesus as my Lord. I, I trusted him as my savior. That's how I became a Christian. All of that is true. Those are all real steps, necessary steps to become a Christian. But the mind-bending and heart-humbling truth is we only made those steps because God chose to call us gave us the faith to trust Jesus, opened the blind eyes to see who Jesus was, softened the hard heart to love Jesus and not reject him. Ephesians 2 puts it like this, we were dead in our transgressions and sins, and then he made us alive. Dead people don't contribute to their regeneration, their resuscitation. Ephesians 1 puts it that before the foundation of the world, we were chosen in Christ, to be forgiven, adopted, a long time before we were born. At which point, sometimes uh, Christians would, would say, hang on, hang on, I get that God announced before Esau and Jacob were born that Jacob would be the one who ended up um, in, in the kind of preeminent role. But maybe that wasn't God actually choosing that to happen, it was just God foreseeing what would happen. You know, he knows the end from the beginning, so maybe it's not his decision. He was just pre-announcing their decisions. Uh, one person in church put it to me like this. Uh, he was saying he, he, Genesis has changed his mind on this, but he was describing what he used to think. He said, I used to think God, it's like God standing on a really high hill, so high that he can kind of see forward through history. And he can look ahead, and he can see, look, Esau's not going to deserve this. He's not going to want this. Uh, but Jacob, I mean, he does deserve it. And so I'll announce beforehand that Jacob's the one. Well, let's go, back to, uh, let's go back to Genesis 25 to see if that stands up. <clears throat> I mean, there's one immediate problem, even from Romans 9, isn't there? Just as you're turning back to page 19. There's one immediate problem, which is that Paul's whole point in Romans 9:11 was it's before they've done anything good or bad. So, so it's not that God is weighing in whether Jacob does good things in the future. So it, it wouldn't fit with what Paul says Actually, I think it doesn't even fit with what Genesis 25 says. Um, so we're just going to look. We're going to pick up the story from verse 29. There's one last little scene to see. We've seen the kind of birth and, and childhood scene. Now it's time for the stew scene and the stew scenario. 
And in this final scene, this is our third point, verses 29 to 34, as, we, as I read it again, just think to yourself, which character deserves God's blessing? If you want, you can have a kind of mental deserve-ometer, kind of the, the, where the needle moves when people deserve or don't deserve God's blessing. So as I read, think which character deserves God's blessing? Once, verse 29, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I'm exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Okay, so how are we doing with the deserve-ometer? Let's start with Esau, because he's the one we might have felt sorry for earlier. Um, how come he is going to end up in second place? How come he is going to miss out on, on some of the inheritance of the Abrahamic blessing? I mean, doesn't he deserve some of that? Oh, no. He doesn't even care. doesn't care about it. We'll see more of this as the story goes on. But what Esau cares about is his current, present, physical appetite. Like verse 30, give me that red stuff. Give me that stew. I'm exhausted. I'm starving. Give me the red stuff now. Esau cares very much about his present appetite and very little about his place in God's family or his future inheritance. Esau despised his birthright. Now, you might be thinking, what, what actually is that birthright? Like, what, what, what's going on here? Well, it's his position. It's his status as the firstborn of the family. It's kind of preeminence. And it's tied to the blessing because normally the firstborn will inherit the lion's share of the blessing, the inheritance. So Esau really is saying, look, I don't care about God's promises. Just give me the stew. That's what I want. We heard a warning, actually, in Hebrews 12 last year from Esau, from this passage, saying, don't treat God's promised future lightly. Don't do in Esau and, and think life's all about grabbing what we can now, even if it means neglecting God's promise. And actually, the more I've looked at verse 32, the more, the more I've been struck by it. It would almost be funny if it wasn't so tragic, the irony of it. First, there's just absurd exaggeration. So Esau said, I'm about to die of what use is a birthright to me. I mean, is he really about to die? There's that. But, but more than that, listen to those words again. I'm about to die of what use is a birthright to me? And then think which birthright we're talking about. For the last three weeks, I've stood up here and said, the Abrahamic promises are God's solution to death. Which is stronger, death or God's promises? Death or God's promises? Abraham and Sarah, they're buried in the land because they're trusting there's a future beyond death. God will still keep his promises even if death comes. In fact, this is the one thing that can help you with death. But Esau, all he can see is a steaming bowl of stew. Striking that, he hasn't been given it enough thought. What he's actually got right in front of him with this Abrahamic promise. Doesn't even see it. And actually, to be honest, how many today are just the same? Oh, don't talk to me about Jesus. I've got real problems to deal with right now. Yeah, yeah, I'll get right with God later. Right now, I need to get wealthy or healthy or get a family or get comfortable for retirement. 
And then this most, I mean, it's as ironic as what Esau says here, this, this most tragic and ironic of statements. I'm thinking about my future so I don't have time for God. Ever had that kind of vibe? Sorry, I want to get my, my life sorted out first. I want to think about my future and then I'll come to God. Your future is God. Truthful. Meeting face to face. Either when we die or when Jesus comes back. So Esau, he, he doesn't move the needle on the deservometer, as it were. He, he's taking God's generosity for granted, his gifts. He doesn't even care. He's actually a lot like Adam and Eve. He threw it all away just for some food. And so we might be thinking, if you think back to the God on the hill, looking forward, you might think, okay, so this is kind of fitting. God looks at Esau and thinks, well, he doesn't deserve it. He's, he doesn't even want it. And so maybe he goes to Jacob, who does deserve it. Maybe that's the point. Except, of course, for the problem that Jacob doesn't deserve it either, does he? I mean, is this really the way to behave in God's family? Jacob, he wants the right thing. At least he's got that going for him. He does actually want the blessing. But he's, he's trying to sneak his way to get it. He's exploiting his brother, isn't he? We've seen this family, that the sign of true faith is hospitality, generous hospitality. And yet uh, Jacob traps his brother at a vulnerable, hungry moment demands a trade that's totally unfair in its terms, and then uh, exploits Esau's weakness. This does not sound like someone who deserves God's blessing. We're, we're, we're waiting for a serpent crusher, someone who will take on evil, who will be so good he can defeat evil. But actually, Jacob sounds more like a snake than a serpent crusher, tricking the air out of his blessing through some food. I think we've heard that story before. So that's why I've called this third point. God's blessing is not deserved by either brother. So it's mercy when he gives it to Jacob. God's blessing is not deserved by either brother. So it's mercy when he gives it to Jacob. And to be honest, that has been the reality of Genesis in every generation of this family. Abraham and Sarah did not deserve it, and yet God blessed them. Isaac did not deserve it, and yet God blesses him. Now Jacob did not deserve it, and yet God blesses. That's our passage, and I hope you can see the point. It is a repeated point. We've seen it before, but it's an important one and hard to absorb. Uh, with the pregnancy, we've seen that God can reverse the curse again. With the, um, with the announcement, we've seen that God reverses the roles again. He gets to choose where his blessing goes. And now, point three, with the stew, we've seen that neither brother deserves it. And so if we're, if we're wanting to kind of throw rocks at God and say it's not fair, well, just think what fair would look like. How, what would the Genesis book look like if God was just pure justice, no kindness or grace or undeserved mercy? Well, it would be a short and sad book, no hope at all. Neither son deserves it. And that's true of us too. Now for our last few minutes, I do want to dip into some application questions, and both kind of questions we may have in our mind and also kind of personal application. All of this will be inadequately short because we are, we are coming to the end of our time. Uh, we'll have more time in small groups, and I hope we do get some questions to chat about next Sunday evening. Um, but let me just briefly touch on some of these questions that may be bubbling up in our, in our minds. Um, firstly, big theological questions. 
What does this passage say about how divine sovereignty fits with human responsibility? So this is that question I said earlier of, are we just robots? Are we just puppets if God's kind of in control and already decided? Um, actually, no, we're not robots or puppets. And this passage is a good example of what the Bible does again and again and again, which is to put side by side God's sovereign plan and some human responsibility for our choices. Esau despised his birthright. He didn't want it. And in the end, God gave him what he wanted. So side by side. Uh, And if we get rid of either truth, either that God is really in control and the universe will end up where he wants, uh, it's not careering and freewheeling into chaos. He will keep his promises. He will save his people. We need to keep that truth alongside this other truth that we are still responsible for choices we make. Esau couldn't blame God for his choice. I'm sure you've got more questions about that. Uh, And quite how those two things fit together is genuinely hard, I think, for us to understand. Feel free to ask more uh, afterwards or in the question time. Secondly, though, does this mean there's no point in dot, 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 trying or witnessing or responding to the gospel? And like, again, if God's already chosen, kind of, what's the point? Either I am saved and I'll make it or I'm not and it's not up to me. Again, the Bible would never encourage us to apply this truth in that direction. Um, Jesus encouraged us to go make disciples, encouraged us to pray and witness. And actually, that's how God will, uh, will grow Abraham's family uh, and, and save many people. Um, if you're sitting here and you're not a Christian, if you're just looking in on things, we're glad you're here, really glad you're here. Um, and you might think, well, in that case, I, I mean, what's the point of me responding? Because it's all decided anyway. Jesus never encourages that way of thinking. Jesus says, everyone who comes to me, I won't turn away. All who put their trust in me, I will save. It's just that if you do do that, you'll see on the other side of the door that God gave you the gift to do that. That's why we pray that people would be drawn to Jesus. Does this mean there's no point? That was that one. Uh, We've already done, didn't God just foresee that Esau would say no? Um, final question on the kind of theological questions. Is Esau a warning to us? Is like, can you actually use Esau to warn us as Christians? Because I thought Christians couldn't fall away if they're like the chosen people. Um, again, this will be far too brief for what is a massive question. But Hebrews 12 did take this episode and use it as a, as a kind of sobering warning to a church family. It said these words, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God that no one sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. This is a warning to take God's promises really seriously and our current uh, appetites, less like not to let them drive how we behave in life. And actually, it is possible to be hanging around church things, kind of hearing what's on offer, hearing a lot of the gospel, maybe you're from a Christian background, maybe you're not, you're kind of enjoying the community, in amongst it, and kind of assuming, because I'm, I'm kind of here, it will all be okay, without ever actually trusting Jesus for ourselves. And this passage would warn us, don't do an Esau. Don't live for today and kind of ignore and neglect what God's saying and God's promising. Now, just as a pastoral health warning, there'll be one or two of us who are 
who are real Christians but often grapple, whether through anxiety or mental health or other reasons, often grapple worrying, what if I'm not chosen? If that's you, please talk to someone who knows you well after this sermon. Uh, Don't kind of go down the spiral of what if I'm not chosen? Again, the Bible never encourages us to think like that. Encourages us to ask, is Jesus capable of saving me? And if he is, I'll put my trust in him. Okay, that's don't do an Esau. Finally, um, uh, let's think about Jacob, because actually the the original audience of Genesis, the Israelites, would have seen themselves in Jacob. They would have realized, oh, hang on, he's our great-granddad, great-great-great-granddad. And what they would have seen in Jacob is that he didn't deserve the blessing. There wasn't something special about him that meant God's favor went towards him. No, it was God's kindness that meant he got blessed. And I think as Christians, we need to take a big dose of this kind of humility medicine. (laughs) That's how this applies to us. I think it can be so tempting as human beings to, to look down at others, to judge or condemn those that we feel aren't doing as good a job. I mean, we even do that about other people's driving, don't we, in the car? Actually, on bigger issues as well. When the reality is that Christians of all people should know that we do not live at the top of Mount Morality, able to look down at other people's performance, kind of sneering, because they haven't climbed as well as us. Not at all. We are being airlifted to hospital. We're in this basket of grace that God has swung down to grab us with. It's his mountain rescue, not our performance. We need rescue like anyone else. So humility about ourselves, humility towards others. And again, we can talk more about these. I hope we do talk more about this in our small groups. Um, And finally, thankfulness towards God. Thankfulness towards God. Um, I've been thinking about this a lot this week, actually. Um, uh, We had quite a hard week as a family. Uh, I know I often say that, but even by our standards, this one felt pretty hard. Um, But I was was struck. It was a good place for the Bible to be in because I was struck kind of, what, what what do I think I'm entitled to? What do I think I deserve? And then how much kinder, actually, is God to me and to us? And if we forget that all of God's goodness to us, the fact we're alive, the breath, the food, the family, the friends, the church he gives us, all of that is kindness. And actually, that's just a foretaste of the inheritance, this massive inheritance he's he's promised to give us in Christ. The more our hearts are aware in humility of how little we deserve that and how generous God has been, well, the more I think we can face the hard things in life with thankfulness. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, there's a lot for us to absorb here from this passage and we find it hard if we're honest. We like to think of a universe where we are in control, not you. And so we pray very much that whatever our questions are, we would take them to you and talk about them with others. And we do thank you for your grace and kindness. You didn't have to save anyone, and yet you've chosen to save many, even us. Help us to grasp that and dwell on it, and be humbled by it, and so look out with love and humility to others. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.